Hello and welcome to this Faber podcast. My name is George Miller, and my guest today is someone I've been looking forward to interviewing for a long time, Dwyane of Irish literature, Edna O'Brien. Edna O'Brien achieved fame, indeed notoriety, with her first book, The Country Girls, published in 1960. Its frank portrayal of women's sex lives led to the book being banned in Ireland, and even burnt. A multitude of books in different genres were to follow in the next 50 years, novels, short stories, plays, biography and criticism. Her first book for Faber is a new collection of short stories entitled Saints and Sinners. What struck me about the book is not so much O'Brien's much-touted lyricism, we talk about that in the interview, but the passion and intensity of the writing, undimmed in a writing career now entering its sixth decade. Whether she's writing about a labourer's dreams of returning to Ireland, or a woman who fears she's losing her husband, or another who waits in vain for an audience with a great poet, or yet another who recalls the intensity of her relationship with her mother, the passion of the writing is everywhere apparent. And so too it was when I met Edna O'Brien. Rarely have I been so struck by the seriousness and dedication with which a writer approaches their craft. We met at the end of a morning which she had spent fruitlessly searching for her visa card, which explains a reference to it you'll hear later, and conducted the interview in her study. I began by asking if this was where she did most of her writing. Yes, I write, in, I call this the Three Sisters Russian Room because of all, because it's red and uh, all the books. I don't know if the Chekhov's Three Sisters had a lot of books, but they certainly had a lot of desire for poetry and books. And I write here, as is evident, it is a little overfilled now, the room, with the books and the papers and the this and the that. And I have a dream, which of course will not come to pass, is that that wall, the adjoining wall, could somehow vanish and I would go into an identical room to this room without the clutter. Then I could entertain as such in the other room and write in this room. But it's a very lucky room for me so far. So many of your books have been written in in this room. I moved in here about 24 years ago. I've written in the forest down by the river house, Splendid Isolation, Wild Decembers, James Joyce, Lord Byron, Saints and Sinners, Three Plays, uh, Haunted, and a version of The Country Girls, and I think several more books. In fact, I'm exhausted trying to remember mm. them. <laughs> they have. It's a very, it's quiet, the light is wonderful, and I do uh, believe in the old superstitions, being a bit old-fashioned. It feels like a lucky room for me. I feel okay in it. And do you have certain preparatory rituals, as it were, before you before you set out to write? Or I do. And the ritual is to read. I would read just even one speech of Shakespeare or a bit of the Bible. I have the Bible as living literature. I have that wonderful book or a poem. I have, at the moment, I have this wonderful anthology from Garnet Press of Russian poetry. And I would read a poem of Mandelstam or whoever I love. And that gets me a Proust. It, it doesn't Ted Hughes, Seamus Heaney, Samuel Beckett, of course, again and again. It doesn't matter who it is, and I don't mean to be in, they're great writers. But when I read something that's very good and that I know extraordinary work and mind and thought and feeling has gone into it, it gives me encouragement. It doesn't mean that what I then write is up to scratch. It often isn't. But that's my, and I always write in the morning. If I haven't written, let's say, by two o'clock, 
the day I'm not going to be writing then. There are too many interruptions. And to write for me, some people are different. I have to be totally alone, unharried, and no noise. I can't even listen to music on the radio. Now, ironically, if the work is going well, and let's say I was on a train or a bus, and there are people around, I can write there because they're not going to bother me. Well, one hopes they're not going to. Except, of course, nowadays with uh, cell phones, everybody is yapping. So I look for the quiet carriage, which I'm sure you know. And do you do you write? Do you tend to write quickly, draft quickly, or is it a is I it a slow process? Hand. So the pens are. Oh, I, the pens! I use up so many pens. It's like using up one's own blood. I write quickly when it's going well, and then I rewrite again and again. And the trouble with my writing quickly is sometimes even I, if if a few days go by and I haven't gone back to it to copy it out in a slightly better hand, I can't decipher it because it, it's like tumbles. Oh. And that's the lucky bit, getting it right then again and again. I don't believe... I'm alone in this, probably. But I honestly don't believe writing with the machine computer is the best idea for creative work. I don't, actually. I think it's so much a body, mind, physical, spiritual, mental thing. But I think I'm alone in that preference. (laughs) Well, you you can see... You can see the track of your thoughts, can't you, when you've written by hand? Well, you can run with the track of your thoughts. You can't so much see, you're not even seeing. You're seeing when you go back to it. But when you're doing it, you can you can run with it. And it's just you and it. There's no costly machine. As you can see, I'm not pro-machinery. <laughs> Tell me, Edna, about the place of the short story in your work, because you've written, of course, novels and plays and, and, and in many forms. But when you when you sit down to write short stories, are you in a particular frame of mind in order to, to capture them? Not so much a particular frame of mind, because the frame of mind when I sit down to write is one of acute intensity, and to tell you the truth, anxiety. I don't write with a free uh, <laughs> or sanguine spirit. I don't. The difference about writing a short story is the material itself suggests the narrative. Uh, A short story is as hard as a novel to write. Perhaps the only difference is a short story might take four or five months and a novel might take three or four years. The material decides the meteor, whether it's a long novel or a short story. And what I think is different in the writing is with a short story one a has to be more economical but also the suspense whether it's three pages long or 33 pages long the suspense has to be sustained the whole time there can be in a longer work greatest example is in war and peace when Tolstoy goes to war with a short story And for that matter, very often with shorter fiction, I'm thinking of Tolstoy and the Cruz of Sonata and other works, The Death of Ivan Ilyich, or however you pronounce it, they have a greater urgency. I'm not saying they're greater, but they have a greater urgency. I like writing short stories, and I wrote these stories for Saints and Sinners 
over different, well, over about a couple of years, different states of mind that I was in. And the last story I wrote, I think, is probably the most obsessing story, was Plunder. And I had written the first half of it, of children in a room and their mother taken, uh, some while back. And Lee, my editor from Faber, came to see me and I said, I want to do the other half of that story. And he was astonished when he got it because he liked the other half because they fit together, homeless, nameless, and a little parable really mm. of some of the awfulness that's happening in the world. The story that took me, that I had great pleasure in writing was, was Shovel Kings because I was able to interview a lot of men up in Kilburn and Camden Town and those places in a pub always. I would always get there by half five because by half eight <laughs> the alcohol might have. And they were older men, some not yet retired, working on building sites, working in the building all over London. And they were all Irish, although there were a few English men in there as well. And they were very jealous. They said, well, why don't you interview us? I said, okay, tell me your story. And they all told me different moments of their life and their hardships, but also their merriment mm. and the things they did and missing Ireland and yet not really able to return to Ireland. So each story, you mentioned my two mothers, I suppose that came, I didn't have to interview anyone for that, that came from another place in the mind. My relationship with my mother is very intense and unending. The fact that she's dead doesn't alter that. And looking and, or thinking about them, not that I'm often thinking about them because they're done now, I just somehow think of the different states of mind that I was in in order to do them. Like uh, Madame Cassandra's sort of, well, it's a bit highly strong story. It's a story of, of her, her marriage, really, of everything, told on the steps of the gypsy's caravan, the fortune teller she's hoping to meet but doesn't meet. So if one were to take all the different stories, so to speak, and put them in a pot called a novel, they'd have to be written differently. Mm. The reader can see that you're clearly enjoying experimenting with different approaches like to the form. Yeah, I love it. I mean, as you said, Madame Cassandra is a sort of interior monologue I told in a rather it. breathless sort of style, yeah. whereas Plunder is very, very spare. There are, spare. There, yes. So, you, I mean, that's clearly part of the, the practice of, of writing short stories. It is, and it's part of the thrill. It's lovely to be able to, as I say, gallop with one and really leech the other out, second by second. They're all hard, I have to tell, say that. The most recent one I wrote was Inner Cowboy. And ironically, I wrote it before the, the crash came, the financial crash in Ireland. But a lot of reviewers and in Ireland also have commented on it as being uh, relevant to, you know, the very the very rich and for that matter the very bumptious rich, in you know developers, contractors, bankers, all, all actually, ripping the country off. Yeah, so they're 
There was poor Carly, the innocent, who really did nothing wrong, but found himself in the wrong. And the sharks, as I call them. I wanted just to, to, to pause a moment on plunder because I, I was really brought up short by the, the bipartite structure of that story because the first part is told in the past tense and then there's a, there's a gap and suddenly you're in the present tense. And just by that shift in tense, the whole thing becomes so much more fearful because you know they're back and it's about the soldiers returning to, to, to where this young girl lives and I, I thought that was sort of masterly just by, just by shifting tense you'd suddenly create you'd suddenly ratcheted up the tension yes and that came actually unconsciously oh. I don't sit down and think oh that'd oh. be better they just come you know sometimes they don't come oh. and the reason I said to Lee I want to do another half to that story I always knew it was only, it's like half a melon or an orange mm. Mm. <laughs> that I would have to do the other half. Mm. And I couldn't do it till I was ready. Mm. That's the other thing with writing. You can only do it when it's ready to come out. That's why you can never predict what you will write next week or next day even. And the unconscious reason, which then, of course, I realized is being valid for the present tense is... The thing I mentioned earlier is that dynamic of what is going to happen? The car is following her. Will they catch her? They do. What is going to happen? Whereas the first part is more, well, it's fear, but it's reverie. Whereas the second part is action, fear. I wished that I had 12 stories, but I couldn't break up plunder into two stories. But uh, I don't have 11 stories at the moment in me. What you describe is a process of great intensity and compulsion. Is and concentration. It a, is it a process that gives you pleasure, or is it, or is it, is the actual writing process more painful than pleasurable? It's two things. It's both, if you can understand the paradox. When I write something that I know, and the writer, her or himself, always knows, if it cuts the mustard, I'm very glad, and in fact rather thrilled but the getting to that is very 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 hard because one writes a lot of lines that are really ninth rate and that have to be discarded but they have to be done it's like you know walking up it's Sisyphus frankly going up the mountain what I find I think hardest and I'm under considerable strain at the moment working on my memoir finishing a play, doing a lot for the short stories, is what I call the other things. Having to be here, there, and everywhere. Having to deal with many requests and many requirements, all of which are well-intentioned, but which make me irrationally, and I mean the word, irrationally anxious. I think when I go up to look at email, if I if four more people ask me to appear at a festival or do this or do this, I actually get cross. I shouldn't, because they mean well. But what it is, is concentration and energy are the two most precious things for writing. They're not only precious, they're essential. Let's say there's the incipient talent, but that talent is rusty unless it's worked at, worked at, worked at. And to work at it, like people say to me sometimes, not you, but people say, oh, do you work for three or four hours a day? I said, it's immaterial. 
whether I work for eight hours or two hours, it's getting into that room in the mind, I'm sure Emily Dickinson would know more about this than I, in which you are able to give yourself utterly to that and be lucky in the trance of and the time that you're doing it. Because yeah. it is like a trance. Yeah. The phone rings or the doorbell rings or I can't find my visa card. <laughs> I keep I can't write. I can't write if I'm distracted. And it it tells in work, in people's work. You can tell whether the writer is is totally immersed in it. And it is, in fact, that is a very good word. It's an immersion and a heater. (laughs) I've heard you in an interview before say that you became sentient. I think that was the word you used at an early age. And I wondered if that was your explanation for the very physical sense memories that that clearly imbue your prose, if those everyday things which you evoke so well really were were laid down in your memory way, way back. And I'm not alone in that. I mean, if you read a page of Marcel Proust, you get that, (laughs) you get that big time. Mm. Yes. Rilke called it, didn't he, the divine detail. I was watchful always for many reasons. One was fear. The other was curiosity. The other, well, I I wouldn't say that I was that at ease on earth as a child and a young person or even as an old person. So that makes you more watchful, but that could be just watchful about locking the door. Uh, Writers, I think, uh, are born, actually. I think it's there in them, this obsession with wanting to see everything, to hear everything, to observe everything, to feel it. I know that from my few times I met with him, I know that Samuel Beckett had that very much. He was growing a bit weary as time went on. He used to say, oh, Edna, the blood isn't getting back up to the brain. I know exactly what he meant. And it's that, it sounds very, if you like, ambitious or covetous with regard but it, it's neither of those things ambition shows itself perhaps in other forms of one's behavior uh, or being published at all if one maybe should write the things and not have them published but I'm not that noble a soul also have to earn my living I think Ireland and my childhood and the locale Drewsborough and the place and the fields and the flowers and the, I mean, the little flowers, the flower, the, see, see the odd, see the odd little clump of primroses in a field full of cow dung and cattle and uh, mounds and thistles. Oh. I, I, it was such a surprise. And in a way, everything was, and to some extent still is, it's a surprise to me as well when I see it. So I was given that particular kind of curiosity and intensity which is essential to the writing. I couldn't be a writer if I didn't have that. That's why you often get people from the same family. Take Stanislaus, Joyce and James. Stanislaus was very intelligent, a bit of a bore, but very intelligent. He couldn't understand why his brother could describe the broken spout of the teapot when they were all sparring at each other in one of the many poor houses they lived in in North Dublin. And it is 
as I've said probably three times now, it is a gift, and it is a gift that one has to, if you like, um, take care of. I can't find the right word. No, not so much nurture as not, not um, throw it away. I mean, it seems to me that you, that you have the receptivity and the, the retentiveness of, of those sense memories, but also the selectivity. Because I, I keep seeing your prose described as lyrical, and lyrical to me suggests a certain kind of abandonment and almost a sort of self-indulgence. And it seems to me your prose is, is, not, is not lyrical at all in that sense. It's, it's highly precise and honed and intensified, but, but lyrical is not, is not the right well, word for I it. I think lyrical gets, <clears throat> gets bandied around a lot, doesn't it? Mm. Yeah, Gerard Manley Hopkins is a great lyric poet, there's no doubt about it. Sometimes baffling to me, he didn't waste a word. It, it, but the, a lyric quality is a very beautiful quality, if it's, mm. if it's good enough in whoever writes it. You know, the, for instance, The End of the Dead, is one of the most lyric passages mm. in all of literature. Again, that's part of the, the journey of the doing of it, is to um, get rid of any, you know, clangers. Faulkner put it very nicely, although he didn't always, and I love Faulkner, but he didn't always abide by it himself. He said, first of all, talking when you're correcting, you must get rid of your darlings, meaning what was over the top. Now, I revere Faulkner, but sometimes he did not get rid of his darlings. <laughs> but in some books he did, As I Lay Dying is a great book. Are you, are you aware of getting rid of your, your own darlings? Is that conscious? I'm rather hard on myself, yes. I think I'm hard on myself, and I'm hard on others um, about writing. I cannot bear. It fills me with rage reading stuff that I know no real hard work went into. And a lot of it is the case. I'm not imagining this. I look at books in the bookshop. I always buy books, but they're rarely, they're books, you know, Anatomy of Melancholy or Pliny or something that I then don't fully finish. <laughs> but I think, I think I am, and more so as I, you know, as you get older, you actually get harder on yourself. Oh. And it has to be, just has to gleam. And again, that adds to the, a bit of the exhaustion. You think, mm. how do I make a gleam? Mm. Well, it, I mean, it seemed to me that you, you have a mastery of the image which is both surprising and yet unforced. There's a, there's a, pa there's a passage in Sinners in which an old woman is remembering her children's love and how the love over time, like a garment that be, is washed again and again, loses its colour. Mm. And that just seemed to me such a wonderful, surprising, and yet unshowy kind of way of expressing it. Well, that's very nice to hear that. I often think, I love incidentally, although she was using the image in a more painful sense uh, than the woman in Saints and Sinners, I love garments that get washed and washed and washed because something, especially in blue, you know, that goes from a, a, a rich blue, paler and paler blue, because it's like a little story, actually. They carry the story of the life and the wear and tear of the jumper. And I remember reading once where that little image, I think, was formed, not formed in me, but where it began, it, like a little, you know, you store away all those little 
secrets. <laughs> and if, I think it was in Proust, but I could be wrong. And I was speaking of the relics of saints, and it's usually cloth, you know. And he talked, whatever author it was, and I would almost swear it was Proust, of the fact that it was no longer. There couldn't be enough cloth around St. Teresa or St. Anthony or whoever. But it was the garments, so to speak, that touched the garments. Does this make sense? Mm -hmm. But it's probably not relevant to your reply. Uh, That made them still call it a relic. But I I think of uh, images about home a lot and my mother washing the washing tub, you know, on the washing board, and I would carry the clothes out to the line, and the line was on a kind of hillock, and the wind, there were trees, but the wind blowing back and forth. And all those particularities, as I shall call them, kind of pay me a visit all the time. (laughs) That's why it's very hard to be normal. (laughs) Pent-up, frustrated female desire remains a theme it seems to me yes. in a number of these and stories too, but tell, tell me tell me a bit about that how that how that manifests its, itself in, in the work well i think all our desires are never met or they're double crossed or thwarted i think it's a condition not just of my thinking or writing but of other thinkers and writers as well but of course it makes very good material for poetry or fiction. Yeats said somewhere, does the imagination dwell more on the woman gained or the woman lost? And the woman lost in his case, Maud gone, but in my case, a love lost or a love object, not fulfilled or not come to its happy fruition, uh, is very much part of my life, it's not my whole life, but it's part of the life I have lived, and therefore it filters its way into fiction. Another thing which has filtered its way into this fiction from your own life is your relationship with your mother. You mentioned yeah. already, I mean, My Two Mothers is an extraordinary piece, and I think it's my, my favourite piece in, in, in the collection. And from what, I, from what I know, you did draw on your own relationship with your mother a good deal in, in writing that piece. I did. I couldn't not. I couldn't not. My mother had, as I have said, has a profound effect on me. But fiction is fiction. It's not a diary. What I wanted, which is why I call it my two mothers, was to imagine another existence of the woman that I only know in, on one level as my mother. And that was, is what I hope might have given it a little breath and a little left that you, for you to like it. So it's, it's both my mother and it's an imaginary work. Because if somebody said to me, I, I wouldn't be able to do it actually, but if somebody said, can you sit down with me and just write or speak into a microphone and tell me about your mother? would be totally different, wouldn't Mm. be like that. So that it's both true and false, and false maybe true and altered or metamorphosized. 
I mean, it, it, it raises an ancillary question then about the process of, of writing your memoir. Don't. Writing my memoir is proving. I have been one year now, one year, and I went to Faber. My inauguration at Faber was 2nd of February. They said, which day? And I said, oh, Joyce's birthday, Feb 2nd, because I'd had hip surgery, so I was able to go out after the 1st of February. And that was one year and almost one year and six weeks. And I have been with interruption, of course, but I have been working very assiduously on it. And there's not much really I can tell you about it because I'm not ready to tell you. I'll, I'll, maybe you'll permit me to come back in, in the future exactly. and talk about it no, then. I will. I will. I couldn't at the moment. Mm. Sorry, mm. What is it about Ireland that keeps feeding your writing all these decades after you left. Yes. What is it about, I did it to a few other writers as well, some I've mentioned down the yes. line. <laughs> Not a Bernard Shaw who called her that cabbage patch. I don't know, it's just a great haunter. Everything about her, the voices, the, the rhythm of speech, the countryside itself, the rain, the this, the that, it's, it's like it's stamped on one. Branded, you know, the way an animal is branded with its name or number, Ireland brands one. And it's no accident just to take it on a slightly other level. I'm not saying that it's a big deal, but the Irish go in more for abroad, when the New York and for the old St. Patrick's Day and things. The Yugoslavs don't seem to do it, or the Russians, or if they do, they don't make as big a show of it. And it's something about the particular nature of character and the kind of nurture or non-nurture that makes those who have left Ireland unable to really leave it, unable to return to it and unable to really leave it. Good for, good for fiction. So it's not something you've resisted, it's something you've embraced or which has embraced you. I couldn't do either, actually, consciously, because it wouldn't be as simple as that. It's not like to go back to the cardigan. It's not like taking off a cardigan. It's there. There are the echoes. There are the sounds. When I hear wind at night, I think of Ireland. A fox is in my garden at the moment, much to my dismay. And I think of foxes at home. So that I overlap my present existence with my former existence, both as a person and in my everyday thinking and when I sit down to write. Edna O'Brien. Her collection of short stories, Saints and Sinners, is out now in paperback. That's all for this podcast from Faber. But be sure to visit the Faber website at faber.co.uk where you'll find a full podcast archive. My previous guests have included Orhan Pamuk, Paul Oster and Peter Carey, and also the Faber blog, The Thought Fox. I hope you'll join me again soon for another Faber podcast. And until then, thank you very much for listening and goodbye.